Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Arduino Edubition podcast. Thanks for listening. We are your hostess, Melissa and Roxana from Arduino Education. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite audio platform and get notifications when a new episode is published and never miss one. You can find us from Spotify, Apple, Anchor and other common audio platforms. So we have discussed on many occasions how IoT has become a transforming technology, how it is already making huge efficiency and productivity gains in our day lives. However, across the world, many people face a number of difficulties from poverty, lack of access to education, clean water and sanitation to environmental degradation. So today we will talk about IoT's potential and critical role addressing many of these challenges for even greater and more significant impact. To learn more about this, joining us today is Marco Senaro. Marco Senaro is a research scientist at the Abdus Salam International Center for Theoretical Physics in Trieste, Italy, where he coordinates the Science, Technology and Innovation Unit. He received his PhD from the KTH Royal Institute of Technology, Stockholm, and his master's degree in electronic engineering from the University of Trieste. Also, Marco's research interest is in information and communication technology for development or ICT4D, the use of ICT for development, and in particular, he investigates the use of Internet of Things for development. He has organized more than 30 training activities on IoT in developing countries. Marco is a visiting professor at Kobe Institute of Computer in Kobe, Japan, and is the Tiny Machine Learning for the Chair and Academic Network co-chair of the Tiny Machine Learning Edu Initiative. So welcome, Marco. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. So uh, before we start with our topic, IoT, uh, let's start with these five uh, short questions for our Division Friends book, right? Yeah. Yes. So first one, what makes you feel inspired? I feel inspired when I see the you know output of my teaching. So when I you know teach something and then I see that students or you know participants and researchers pick up what I teach and they expand it in their own environment. Yeah, it's it's very rewarding exactly what you say. See what you're teaching, like it's giving like you plant a seed and then you see the tree. <laughs> Exactly. And the interesting part is that you don't know how this tree will look like, right? So you don't, uh-huh. you know, people have their own, you know, ideas and their own projects. So they pick up what you teach and then they apply it to their own environment. True. And you can get some really nice surprises. So, yeah, it's very cool. And uh, do you have any people, book, resources that have been particularly influential for you? So I grew up at the time when people were talking about openness, right? So, you know, open software at the beginning. So, you know, Linux, of course, and, you know, sharing code and being able to modify that code. And then it was, you know, open access. So being able to read, you know, books and technical material openly and being able to use that material for your own, you know, teaching and your your own, you know, research. And so I think that, you know, Anything that is open really is, you know, something that inspires me. Okay. And that's nice. And then one, uh, what's the one thing you wish you know when you began your career? Oh, that's a very good question. And I would say that the technical 
is not the only aspect, right? So when you work on projects, being an engineer, you kind of focus on the technical issues. And those are, of course, hard to solve. You want to find new solutions and, you know, original solutions. That is good. But then you have all the, you know, social and business aspects and how to make, you know, these projects sustainable on the long run, on the long run. And so that is one. And then, of course, the ethical aspects as well. So all the non-technical things that, you know, you don't really learn at university. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're focusing on mastering the technical part, and then all the other things come on top of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and at the end of the day, you you kind of learn that the technical is maybe you know 30, 40 percent of the whole picture. Of course, that's I mean really important, and you need to tackle that. So without the technical one, you cannot tackle all the others. But still, you need to sure. take into account the others as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what is a common myth about your profession or field that you would like to set straight? Yes, that, uh, you know, ICT for d so using ICT for development is not something that an NGO does. So from, from my point of view and, you know, what ICTP is doing, we're working on education. So when people hear about ICT for d very often they have the idea that you kind of, you know, parachute some technology and some expert and, you know, you install things and then you leave and that's it. And that is a myth. So and ICT 40, I mean, doesn't work that way. It is not sustainable in that way. It doesn't grow in that way. Okay. And then final, tell us something interesting about yourself. Most people don't know. Oh, that's a good one. Um, well, I'm a a ham radio person so i love you know amateur radios and that is a hobby which i have been you know working on since i was a kid and by the way finland and you know sweden are really really good in that there's okay. you know, there's many people working in that field as a hobby oh, okay that's interesting i didn't know yeah <laughs> you see now we know like, now <laughs> everyone will know yeah <laughs> oh so it's cool <laughs> nice so uh, let's talk about your your research. So what is the Abdul Salam International Center of Theoretical Physics? What do you do there? What is the mission? Sure. So it is a center that has been created about six years ago by a physicist called Abdul Salam coming from Pakistan, uh, which later received the Nobel Prize with a very clear mission of supporting science in developing countries. So we have been doing that for 60 years. And we do it in different ways. So one way is to invite people here to Trieste for some, you know, training courses, conferences, or even longer stays. We organize activities in developing countries itself. And, but we do that uh, being a research institution, which means, again, that we have, you know, research carries, carrying on their own, uh, you know, studies and, and, you know, advanced research at ICTP. So um, when people come here, they can, you know, join our groups, we can work together on some research, or they can learn on, you know, specific topics. And it's called theoretical physics, because at that time, theoretical physics was the only kind of, you know, physics that people could do in developing countries, because you only need a blackboard and, and some chalk. And then things evolved over the years. And now there is also, you know, more applied fields as well. And we're a category one UNESCO institution, which means that we're part of the UN family. 
at large. Okay. Hmm. And your research focuses on IoT, wireless sensor networks, and their application in developing countries. Can you tell us more about your research and what have you encountered? Yes. So that uh, so I started quite long ago when this field was called wireless sensor networks. In fact, my PhD in, in Sweden was about the use of sensor networks in developing countries. And the say, basic idea is that, uh, as you know, I mean, sensor networks and IoT, they have a very broad range of applications. And my point is that these applications are even more interesting in developing countries than in developed countries, because there is many things to be measured in a you know scientific and, and you know precise way. And it, most of these countries are data poor because they don't produce much data. Well, in the north, we live in countries that are data rich. So we have, you know, lots of data produced all over the place. So being able to use these devices, which are cheap and low power, and nowadays long distance as well, they offer, you know, wide range of opportunities to, you know, measure things. But the research has to do with how you can kind of adapt this technology to the special conditions that you find in developing countries. So I'll give you an example. Very often we only focus on the power consumption of the IoT nodes of you know our small devices. But these small devices are a part of a you know wider uh, system. So you have you know servers, you have gateways if you're losing you know LoRa connectivity, for example. And very often we don't consider the power consumption of these bigger devices, because in many countries we don't have the issue of you know power uh, you know shortages, while in some other countries we do have that issue. So just as an example, when you consider these networks in this more difficult environment, you need to take into account you know many more parameters. You were talking that you started researching this topic, even with a different name, many years ago. But then how how is the current use of IoT in developing societies and what, what is its potential to tackle these global development challenges? Yeah, I think there's many, many applications, as you know. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I would say that environmental would be maybe number one. So if you're uh, you know, thinking about climate change, for example, we need to have data about climate. And we're lacking that kind of data. So there is this number that always strikes me that say that there is the same number of weather stations in Africa than in Germany. And it's, you know, one to two billion people in the African continent, uh, you know, compared to the population of Germany. And the issue is that, for example, weather stations are very expensive devices and they need maintenance and they need to be constantly connected to the internet to send data you know, re in a reliable way. So the question is, can you use IoT devices to measure climate and weather conditions in a you know, low cost and you know, low power way so that they can work properly in more difficult environment? So I would say environmental monitoring would be one. Agriculture, of course, is another one. As we know, we need to produce more food. There's more people, we need to produce more food. And so we need to optimize in some way food production. So IoT for agriculture plays an important role. And now we learned about you know, health issues and how we're all connected. So again, being able to use IoT for these kind of uh, you know, applications is also 
very important. Yeah, you mentioned already there's a few different, but is there some of these different fields that you're most interested to study more? I would say that the environmental one are the mm-hmm. most promising, I would say, because again, we're all concerned about climate and we need to get, you know, data from all the countries about, you know, uh, you know the, the climate. A field which I didn't know much about and I learned about is the one of ocean sciences, because there again, these uh, kind of scientific devices to measure you know, ocean conditions are still expensive. So only a few countries can afford them while we need more kind of distributed measurements from you know many different countries. So we worked on some projects to develop ocean drifters. So devices that move with the sea current and they send their position so that you can study how currents you know work and using IoT technology. So there again, it's kind of the same idea of, of weather stations. So being able to use you know, low-cost devices, low-power devices to replace super expensive scientific equipment. And that, of course, needs some, not only engineering, but also some, you know, calibration and some kind of scientific, uh, you know, analysis of how good are the results with these low-cost devices. On the other hand, we can have many more. So instead of having a super expensive one, we can have many cheap ones. And we can use software to make you know, sense of all this huge amount of data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And then to compare. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. The one of... of the oceans. That's also very mm-hmm. interesting. So you already shared some examples and you already talk about measuring like the weather, the climate change and also the oceans. But is, is there other examples of IoT deployment and during your research? And have you already noticed some impact of these examples? Yes, absolutely. So what, what I learned from these kind of training activities and activities um, is that people know exactly what they need in their environment. So one might have, you know, this big idea saying, you know, environment is good, agriculture, health and so on. But then people know about their, you know, specific needs. So, for example, we had activities in Rwanda, a small country, Central Africa. And in Rwanda, they rely on tea production. So that makes for about 10% of the GDP. So it's really important for their economy. So being able to optimize tea production is really important and has a lot of impact. And of course, I wouldn't know coming from Italy that, you know, that is the need of, of the country. So we had a workshop and then, you know, participants came up with this idea of using IoT to measure tea production. And it wasn't tea production, meaning, you know, uh, plantations of tea, but it was tea processing. So in tea factories, they process tea, they, you know, ferment tea, and then they kind of uh, have to check the temperature, the humidity, how much moisture you have in the tea and so on. So to be able to use IoT devices to measure these parameters is really important. So this is just to say that, you know, I can have some ideas, but then, you know, local, uh, you know, yeah. researchers and practitioners do know what is needed in their own country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of collaborating with them to understand what is actually something that they can benefit from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What about then challenges? Have you faced some challenges that you haven't thought about before? Or, for example, uh, infrastructure, scalability, materials, ethics? Absolutely. I would say all of them. All the ones. That, yeah. <laughs> all <laughs> more. Exactly. And more. Yeah. So I would say that the first one is getting access to devices. This, again, yeah. is, a, is, is an issue in many places, especially when we're talking about radio devices. So devices that have radio chips inside because they need to be type approved by countries. So when you use something in the European Union or in the US or in Japan, they need to have a stamp saying that this radio device is okay in terms of you know power that they're outputting, frequencies and so on. So when you use these same devices in other countries, in the African continent, for example, um, they need to be type approved by each country which means that you cannot simply you know, buy them on the market and use them. So that is kind of a long process that you know, can, can, can take some time, exactly, yeah. Then um, the other issue which I didn't you know, think about is data. So um, it, it's fine, we use you know, cloud services that is very convenient, of course. So you generate data and you send them on the cloud, but not all countries allow that. And when you're talking about more sensitive data, uh, countries and universities are not that happy about sending data all over the place. They want to know exactly where data is stored. So um, that you know is kind of another issue because again, it kind of collides. I mean, the technical aspect is simple. You set up an account on a cloud service, you send data and that's it. But then from the kind of, again, practical sustainability point of view, it's not that simple. And the third one is the ethical one, which again, you know, at the beginning, maybe one doesn't really focus on that, but on the long run, it is very important. So we had, you know, situations where, uh, you know, workers were worried about their, uh, you know, workplace because of IoT. Saying, so, okay, what, what happens now if I have this system which automatically sends data while I used to, you know, pick some, you know, water sample and do it manually. And now it's automatic. So these kind of ethical issues are, are there as well. And the other one, you know, again, connected to ethical issues of IoT is that, so if you think of the whole system, so you're, you're measuring something with IoT, you're storing the data on some server, and then you analyze this data, and then what next? So you need to take a decision, right? You need to do something. <clears throat> so who takes that decision? And that decision, uh, you know, might have huge, huge ethical, you know, impact. So again, if you're, you know, talking about water quality, which is a big issue in many, many countries. So you can come up with technical solutions to measure water quality with IoT. You can send them, you know, data, you can uh, analyze it. And then what happens if water quality is bad? Are you going to leave leave people without any drinking water? Mm. So it's again far away from the technical, but still very important. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What are the next steps then after uh, finding the result? Yeah. 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 That's true. Wow. It's not that easy. No. 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 Mm. I'm talking about not easy things. <laughs> what, <laughs> in your opinion, what's the biggest risk risk associated with the Internet of Things? Like, for instance. 
do you think we could run the risk of creating a new digital divide with IoT? And if so, how can we prevent it? Yes, absolutely. So uh, I, I think it goes maybe in, in the same line as openness, because mm. again, uh, I mean, um, these you know cloud services or these uh, systems where data are stored are usually hosted by in the, in the northern hemisphere, I would say, and so you have this data bouncing from you know southern countries to the north just to be stored and then they go back to the south to be you know analyzed and visualized and for decision to be taken so um, i would say that that is a risk in 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 a way because again it creates this divide and so i would say that you know distributing things so that the data are closer as possible to the producer of the data is the way to go so you know, hosting these services in the in the south, in the you know countries that use IoT would be a solution. Okay. So I would say that this kind of big label of data is something that one mm -hmm. has to keep an eye on. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think um, maybe a bit re related to that, but what do you think would be one factor that most accelerates the benefits of the Internet of Things in developing countries? So the I would say the distributed infrastructure in a way yep. so yeah so um, again it, if we're talking about devices that send data over the internet there is a number of you know technical options and uh, what we normally use for our training activities is based on LoRa and LoRa one because this is a, a you know low cost way to send data at long distance so that has been i think the biggest um, kind of the game changer compared to the old days of sensor networks. So in the old days of sensor networks, the range of these devices was really limited. So the number of applications you could think about was, again, quite limited. And nowadays with these long range protocols like LoRa and Sigfox and, you know, even cellular in, you know, in some cases, then you can reach much longer distances. So the number of applications is much larger. But then this um, infrastructure needs uh, you know, to be deployed in some way. So if you use GSM, you're using the mobile operators, which also means that you're paying a cost, a recurring cost. In the case of LoRa and LoRaWAN, you need to deploy your own infra your infrastructure which means that you need to you know, invest a bit on that, but then the, uh, the communication comes for free. So you, do, you don't need to pay anymore. So to get back to your question, you know, setting up this infrastructure in an open way so that more actors can use it would be a game changer. It would be really you know, push this technology quite, quite a lot. So in fact, this is what we're trying to do. There's one, one case in Uganda where together with uh, NSRC, which is based in the US in Oregon, and with the you know local NREN called Darenu, we're trying to deploy uh, gateways. In fact, they're deploying gateways in the universities and in schools, which then means that if you're at university and you want to come up with an IoT project, you don't need to think about, you don't need to invest in the infrastructure because that has been taken care of by the university itself. So okay, it should open the way to startups and, you know, new ideas. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah, that's great. 
just remove some of the obstacles, right? So exactly. That's very good. Exactly. Yeah. So you you already uh, tell us a little bit of of one uh, factors that could accelerate these benefits, but is there another like policy that also help with this? Like that you say that you go to different countries and that they might have their own rules and policies. Yes, exactly. Well, that 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 is another one that in some countries there is no policy, for example, about the use of the frequencies that are uh, used by LoRa communications. So as much as you can, you know, buy the devices because they're very cheap and you can, you know, someone sets up the infrastructure, you still need to have, you know, uh, an authorization to use that specific frequency. So that would be one. And, and that has to do with the radio spectrum. And the other one is, again, again this type approval. So if countries could, you know, kind of facilitate the use of these devices, even if they have not been type approved in their, you know, country that would be you know uh, a game changer and the other thing is that you know iot um, is kind of a new technology so some countries are so confused about that so they, they ask to you know analyze and check the devices when they enter in the country but as we know you can modify the software in the devices so the device that they checked would not be the same one that you use so there needs to be also an awareness about this, you know, new technology and the fact that IoT is composed by hardware and by software as well. And so people should know that, or you know, regulators should know that it's a bit more complex. It's a different from, you know, a GSM base station or a Wi-Fi mm -hmm. access point that you cannot modify in any way. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And you already mentioned your work you've been doing in Uganda and Rwanda, for example, but then you've been running on hands-on training courses in Africa for uh, faculty members and university students to increase the awareness of IoT. Could you share something about this experience? Are there other countries too than Uganda and Rwanda? Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Many others. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, the, the, these workshops are organized in the following way. You, we usually have some lectures in the morning. And then we have hands-on experience in the afternoon. And there, you know, again, people learn about IoT and they get inspired by, you know, learning about what you can do with these devices. And then they come up with some projects. So it's either, you know, that we follow up later with the project. So people say, I want to measure, you know, air quality, like we did in Benin and in South Africa, or they measure, you know, landslides, like, they did in Rwanda or, you know, volcanoes like they did in Ecuador. And it's it's really very, very wide. Or, you know, car traffic like they did in Ethiopia. And so we either support them after these activities or sometimes during the activity itself, we kind of prototype some devices and we deploy them. Because by that, you know, exercise, then they learn kind of the complexity of all these different components. Because that is kind of the challenging aspect and the interesting aspect of IoT, right? So you have, you know, the radio part, so you need to know a bit about radio physics. And, you know, there's protocol, there's software, there's, you know, the embedded devices, there's the power aspect in terms of, you know, power consumption and, you know, sustainability of these devices out in the field. And then there is, you know, databases, visualization. So it's, it's security, of course. So it's, it's really quite complex. So by going through an, a deployment and an exercise, they kind of learn how to tackle all these different components. And it's, of course, re rewarding because it 
is you know rewarding for them because they see that you know this technology has an application and then for society as well because again you do get some data that you wouldn't get otherwise yeah. yeah, and I like the fact that they are coming up with the ideas. They come from their everyday life or the from the environment that they live in. Yes, absolutely. There, 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 there's one interesting case um, that you know happened quite some time ago about a fellow from Malawi that came to one of our training activities in South Africa, and he learned about uh, you know this technology, and he thought about applying it in his own country, where the issue was measuring water in water tanks. So the way they distribute water in many countries is that they fill a big tank and then this tank gives water to homes. But you need to, in some way, measure how much water you have in the water tank. So the normal way to do it is having a very long stick and having someone you know, going from one water tank to the other, measuring with a stick and then reporting back to the you know, water company. That is, of course, time consuming it's not automatic. It's, you know, if someone skips a water tank, then you don't have data from that water tank. And you pollute quite a lot, by the way, because you need to drive from one place to the other. So this guy had this idea of deploying an IoT network with a small sonar device that measures how much water you have. So it's very, you know, basic sensors. And then he would send SMSs back to, you know, a, a server. And that is very easy to scale. You can install that device in you know hundreds of water tanks and you get the data in an automatic way. So every I don't know, 10 minutes, you get a measurement. So you don't skip any measurement and you don't pollute by the way, because it has a small solar panel, a small battery. So it's automatic in a way. And that has been very successful. He now has a company with you know employees and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And funnily enough, there was another fellow in Thailand where we had a similar activity that picked up the same idea. So he used the same idea of measuring how much, in his case, was fuel in, you know, in fuel tanks, but with the same, exactly the same technology. So, yeah, people, can, you know, pick up these yeah. new concepts and then they apply it to their own. Needs. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's definitely true. great that it comes from from the needs that they have in their everyday lives. So it's something that we couldn't figure out because we don't use the water tank here, for example. So mm -hmm. why would I then come up with that kind of uh, idea? Yeah. yeah. So I think it's really great, and I think it's also like uh like you said, it's automated. For example, if every ten minutes you get a message that okay, this is the amount of water, maybe there's also less of delay of filling those water tanks, so people don't have to wait for uh, for water to 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 be brought there. Absolutely, yeah. and then when yeah. going back to the kind of business and sustainability point of view, the water company can optimize the way they can they fill in these water tanks. So it, it will generate, you know, more profit at the end of the day for the for the water board as well. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's that's so great. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you, you were you were discussing uh, early in the interview about ICT D4 and that there are some myths around that. And then you we were talking about your research and now some workshops, but <clears throat> Is there like a framework for IoT intervention in the developing countries? Like, how do you start? Like, with the awareness, workshops, <coughs> deployment? How how is the process? Yes, and so we follow the same kind of process that ICTP follows. 
meaning that we really focus on capacity building and on empowering people. So when again, when we teach about IoT, it's not only about you know the the you know deployment of the devices, but it's also about you know the radio physics, about you know electronics, so that people learn how these technologies work. Um, and then again, they come up with their own applications, and then there is kind of this follow-up activity, which is either you know keeping in touch with them or supporting them in the researcher. So many of them are you know students, either master or PhD students. So we then help them, you know, with their thesis, for example, or you know they come here, they spend some time with us. And then there is the third part, which is also I think quite important, is about the human networking. So in many places, people have kind of, or they try to tackle the same issues. So again, getting back to the example of tea production. So tea production is huge in East Africa. So something that had been developed in Rwanda could be used in you know, Tanzania, in Kenya, in Uganda, in Malawi, and just as only in Africa. Then if you move to Asia, there is you know, Sri Lanka, India, China, there's many, many countries producing tea. So we try to make, you know, to support people so that they can work together. So when they find a technical solution for an issue, it wouldn't make sense for someone else to come up with the same solution. Uh, so if they can communicate and exchange ideas, then of course that's, you know, very positive. Yeah. And coming back to the openness and the kind of building community to sharing yeah. these ideas and sharing that, yeah, the solutions. Yeah. How do you see IoT evolving in the near future? So now there is there is a big interest to what is called TinyML, so having machine learning on you know small devices, and that again has I think a huge potential in developing countries, because um, as we're using machine learning models on the edge, so next, I mean near to the process that we want to analyze, we don't need to send any data. So countries that don't have this infrastructure or that you know uh, have issues in setting up the infrastructure, they can still get a lot out of the data that they're collecting. So this is one. Second one is it is even lower cost than IoT because we're using microcontrollers versus microprocessors. So these devices are really, really cheap. And the third one is that it is really low power. Um, so these devices, as they don't send data, they don't have any visualization, they can run for a really long time with a really small battery. So in that sense, we created an academic network of people interested in TinyML. So we have universities from 20 different countries, um, which are part of this network. We have seminars, we have online forums where people can interact, and we're going to run a workshop starting next week and we have planned for even more uh, you know uh, ne next year at the beginning of next year so having this machine learning on the edge on really small devices i think is really really interesting yeah for sure and, and that's that was going to be my next question so what are your next plans what are you going to do <laughs> so you have a yeah. workshop <laughs> so that 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 yeah, this you know tiny ml is also interesting because it again, shifts a bit the uh, kind of the focus, because if you mm -hmm. have to, you know, each TinyML, then you have, again, the embedded kind of aspect, the IoT aspect, 
the power aspect, but now you also have the machine learning aspect. And so it kind of adds a bit more complexity, but on the other hand, it's also very interesting. It's a field that, as you know, is growing at an incredible speed. And so I think it's interesting for people uh, not only to you know connect to a server somewhere uh, on the cloud somewhere, but also to have some small device that you can use to measure things in your own lab or in your own you know environment. In fact, we already have some cool applications from you know members of this network. We have a group again from Rwanda working on cholera detection using TinyML. We have students in Brazil doing some very interesting stuff about COVID, about you know detecting the way you you, you cough, for example, by using TinyML for you know measuring the condition of the heart. So kind of you know medical applications doing there's other students doing you know plant disease detection in West Africa. So again, different applications in this case, but yeah. super interesting. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Do you have um do you have any website or a place where you collect these different different projects from uh, students or from different countries? Yes, 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 absolutely. Mm -hmm. For the tiny ML one, yes. It's, okay. it's hosted by Harvard, which is you know uh, working mm -hmm. in this in this uh, network quite a lot. Yeah. So we're working together to set up this academic okay. network. Okay. Perfect. That's then we can awesome. share that of uh, yeah. with our listeners too. Yeah, exactly. To learn sure. more about this. Yes. So, Marco, do you have any final thoughts, recommendations? How can we contribute to this? Uh, I I think I mean the openness, as mm -hmm. we said, is really important. So what you know Arduino is doing, making you know all the documentation open, and you know have been doing that for long since the beginning. I think that's really, really important, and I, you know, hope that will still be the case in in the future. And because then again, people can use that information, use it for their own, you know, projects, teaching. So it really has a multiplying effect, I would say, when you know you produce some open, you know, documents or training courses, yeah. or yeah, it's really, really important. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and exactly like you said, like uh, if you don't have the possibility to purchase all the materials, you can follow documents to create or build your own ones if you need it. For example, yeah. for the microcontrollers, or then, like you said, bringing the awareness, having these discussions with our, our special guest. It's really amazing to like tell us, uh, tell more for people what they, what they can do, what is happening out there, and then of course if. We have any training materials yeah. for people to exactly. use. So it's really nice. Yes. Uh, so thank you, Marco, so much. It was this was very interesting. Like yeah. talking about technology, but with a different angle, right? So you can see a different potential of how can technology can help solving these uh, very pressing issues. So it, it's great what what you're doing. So thank you so much for for sharing. Thank you very much thank for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And what did you like about today's topic? Give us a review and join the conversation on Edovision Live episode on Thursday, October 21st at 5 p.m. Central European Summertime. You can comment and participate on the live chat on our social media channels on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and Crowdcast.
Exactly. You can, of course, check the episode afterwards and you can find the link from arduino.cc slash education slash edubition. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.